Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks for being here with us this Christmas Eve. Why don't you uh, greet your neighbor there, look at him and say, He came for you. Jesus came for you. He did. He came for you. So again, we just want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas uh, this morning and, and just want to thank you for being here with us. And I want to preach a message, believe it or not, I'm going to talk about Jesus coming to earth in the flesh. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine? That's what I'm going to do this morning, and so I'm going to call it the Incarnation, and I'm going to read from John chapter 1. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, especially as it pertains to this time of year. And uh, so John chapter 1, verse 1 through 14, I want to talk to you about the Incarnation, God becoming flesh this morning. So in John chapter 1, here's what it reads. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word this morning, and I thank You for every person here that has come to worship You and come to listen this morning. And God, when I, when I sit and meditate about these truths and about these realities that God you loved us so much that you did cross eternity and you took on flesh to enter in and become what we are in order to be our substitute and our sacrifice and our model and ultimately our Lord and the Savior of our very lives. God I can't offer words that can explain that in a way that a human heart can grasp it but Holy Spirit what I'm asking you to do is come this morning and somehow some way remove any veil that would be over our heart or over our mind and Lord let the light penetrate the darkness that is in our own hearts and let us get a revelation Jesus of your love for us and what it meant God when you took on that flesh and you became man and you died in our place Lord we thank you for what you have done and we thank you for what you're doing in every heart God I pray that you touch lives you save souls you heal bodies Lord God and you redeem us and 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 bring about that redemption more deeply than ever before in our lives today in Jesus name we pray amen now I really truly believe that the incarnation is is, is the greatest wonder of all I think that I think that the resurrection is an amazing thing and obviously we celebrate that and it is essential to our faith. We believe in the crucifixion and we celebrate that and it is central to our faith. But when you talk about God Himself who created the world, created the universe, made all things, breathed it into existence and somehow or another He takes on flesh and becomes a little baby born in a manger, that blows my mind. I don't know about you and sometimes when I sit and think about it, I know it's a common thing for us now and we treated as well we sing the songs every Christmas and it's something that we're so used to and so familiar with that honestly we don't sit and just sort of bask in the beauty and the wonder of all that is truly going on now I have to think about this you know we were singing that song and it says that he crossed eternity to come and take on flesh that's what we were singing this morning and this phrase came to my mind somebody's probably said it but but I thought about him this week and and Mary holding him in her arms and him being a little infant and you guys know what it's like around here to hold an infant because y'all have one about every other week you know what I'm saying <laughs> so we, we know what that's like but within that infant was the infinite everything was in that baby that baby boy spoke 
creation into existence before he became that little infant that was completely dependent upon his mother. And that is a theological truth that blows the mind. We can't comprehend what that means and why that even happened. Why did he have to do that? I want to unpack a few of those things about why God becomes human and immortality becomes mortal in that moment. Now, I want to show you a quick video because why not show you a quick video of my baby when she was born? You know what I'm saying? It's a great day for it. So this is my baby on the day she was born. You hear that grunt? <laughs> All right, yeah, that's it. You can hit the X there, huh? Okay. So that was the day that my child was born. And you guys, you guys know what it's like, like I said, because you guys have lots of babies. But you guys know what it's like to have a child and hold an infant in your arms. And I, I remember somewhere around that time, man, that was an emotional time for me and for Andrea on m multiple levels, like a lot of different reasons. But the day that I'm sitting there holding that baby in my arms, and, and it, you know, it was, she was born on Thanksgiving, actually. Around that time is when we got her. And, and, and so... Uh, you know, we were heading into the Christmas season. I'm starting to think about that stuff around Thanksgiving. And I'm holding her in my arms one night somewhere around that time. And I start to think to myself, this is the way that Jesus came. This is the way that God showed up. He humbled himself, took on flesh, became completely dependent upon his mother. Grew up as a, as a little toddler. toddler. He, he went through every single thing that we went through as human beings because he had to become a faithful mediator on our behalf. He entered into what we are so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. And in that moment, you begin to understand the depth of God's love for us. And see, the truth is, even when you talk about baby Jesus, the entire world revolves around the birth of this man, Jesus Christ. We split time, A.D. and B.C., based on the birth of this one man because he has changed everything for us. Now, when you talk about, like, superheroes, I don't know what you, if you guys like superheroes. I kind of like them. You know, you got Wolverine. Like, it's cool when the dude gets shot with bullets and he heals and shoots the bullets back out of himself. Like, who wouldn't want that? I'd be like, dude, shoot me right quick. Let's try it out. You know, like, we love when he does that. We, Superman. He, he has the ability to fly. He has the ability to lift buildings and do all these things. Spider-Man can swing on buildings. And we love those things, but all of those things are a figment of our imagination. Our superhero is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was real. And the, the Word of God takes on flesh, and when he shows up, he demonstrates, in fact, that he is God. Because literally, the man walks on water. He demonstrates that the elements themselves bow to him. They bow to the name of Jesus. And they know when you want to walk, sir, we will suspend what we are supposed to be doing and we will hold you up if we must. He speaks to storms under the power of the Holy Spirit and demonstrates that ultimately he is the creator of the world and that this world has went out of order. It has entered into chaos. But guess what? I'm still over this thing. And one day I will declare a peace that brings an order to all things. And he calms the storms. He comes up on hungry people and thousands of people that need to eat and he takes just a few loaves and a few fishes and he multiplies that and feeds thousands upon thousands he shows up to every sick person that you can find and heals them and when they can't get his attention well enough they just touch the hem of his garment and they're healed from the power that flows out of him and then he shows up and he's faced with death and one of his great friends Lazarus and he shows and demonstrates that even death cannot touch him because he is the resurrection and the life and then he himself enters into death and busts it open from the inside this is the best superhero that I could ever imagine and we need to give him the glory do his name you can't make a Marvel movie that good you can't do it but see he is real and this is what we believe as Christians this is what we confess as our faith he demonstrates that truly he is God in the flesh now John writes this and you know you write these things and 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 you can skim through some Bible verses but when he says this in the beginning in the beginning was the word and the word was God the word was with God the same was in the beginning with God he goes down a little bit and then he says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us 
He uses a word that honestly is not the word that you would use there if you were just going to say the word or the written word necessarily or anything like that. He uses a word that has deep meaning, especially in the Greek language, and it's logos. And I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but he says, in the beginning was the logos. Now, here's what you have to understand is that the the Jewish people knew what that word meant because they were now speaking Greek, especially in Jesus' day. But see, they were people of the word. What they believed about God was so centered around His Word because they believed that through God's Word, He created all things. And so now, through the prophets, God spoke to His people through His Word, and they would write the Word of God down on stone tablets, or they would write the Word of God down on parchments. And the Word of God didn't just speak creation into existence, but the Word of God came to you and to I to give us meaning, to give us purpose, to give us understanding, to know how to live, to know how to move and go about life and understand who we are and who God is. And so they wrote it, but when they would write the Word of God on parchment, they would have to go and cleanse their hands and then come and write it and then go cleanse their hands once again because the Word of God was so pure to them. It was central. So when he uses this word, the Word was in the beginning with God, Jewish people say, well, yeah, amen, we believe that, man. We follow the Word of God. But see, during that time, you also had Greek-speaking Hellenists who believed in philosophy, right? And they had, there were all these philosophers. One person actually said that, that if, if the law of God led the Jewish people to Christ, then philosophy leads the Greek people to Christ. Because years, hundreds of years before Jesus, they believed in the Logos too. A guy named Heraclitus and some other philosophers, they said, you know what, somewhere out there, we don't know what it is. It's some kind of a force. It's the logos. It's the unmoved mover. There is a principle outside of us, beyond us, beyond creation, that has ordered all things and put all things in balance. And it's the reason all things are held together and the reason that there is wisdom and the reason you have some people that are foolish and some people that are wise because some people are tapping into that logos and they're seeing around the world world and seeing all these things that there's some power out there that we don't know and ultimately they believe that probably you can't know it you can't know this power that's out there that created the universe that put things into existence you know what john says john shows up and says you know what hebrew people you're right in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word did create all things and they said amen we say amen to that amen then he says to the philosophers he said in the beginning yes it was the logos there was a a a a mover but this mover was not an unmoved mover because this mover ends up becoming moved by the feelings of your weaknesses and your sin and your pain and he is compassionate and he feels for you and he says this mover isn't just somewhere out there in space as a divine principle that orders things this mover you can actually know in a personal relationship because one day in history he took on flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and his name is Jesus Christ so he's laying something out that's very important and very deep here because he's pointing back and he's pulling through all the philosophies of time and saying look you guys have had all these philosophies you've been looking for gods you've been looking for it but here's what I want you to understand even the Jewish people only got glimpses of God they, through the word of God, they got glimpses of God. They had relationship with God. But even Moses just saw his back parts as he passed by. But he said, when you see Jesus Christ, you see the fullness of God. Jesus said, how is it that you ask to see the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the exact representation of his glory. I'm the imprint of his very nature. When you see me, you see God in the flesh. And you see what, how he acts, how he treats people how he loves, the power that he carries. You see the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelling in Jesus Christ. And the most beautiful thing about this is, here's the thing, most of these people believe throughout the millennia. Now, the Jewish people had a different concept, and they began to have a different concept, but they didn't fully understand what was going to take place because the Spirit of God would come on some people, and they could pray to God, and they were trying to earn their salvation, and if if they did enough good works, then maybe they would please Yahweh. But Jesus comes down and says, no, 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 you don't understand. There's no good works that you can do to be reconciled to the Father. I'm going to come as a man and do the good works for you so I can pave a way back to the Father and so you can have a relationship with this God who is deeply concerned with you. He cares about you. 
He's not an unmoved mover just out there causing things to happen. He sees a world in which he created free will. And yes, it has gone haywire because there are powers of darkness and there is free will and there is choice at play that has caused things to run amok and sin that has contaminated the world. But he loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus on a rescue mission. And see, it says that the darkness was there in the beginning, but the light shined in that darkness and that darkness did not overcome it. Now, if we go through this, I want to give you just a few things here that the Logos was according to John. According to John, the Word of God or the Logos is eternal with no beginning and no end. Jesus didn't show up as a baby and that was the first time He existed. No, He existed with no beginning before He showed up as a baby. The Logos has always been with God, face to face with the Father as an equal in relationship. And the Logos is a person distinct from yet equal to God, but he also says that the Logos is the creator and therefore he is eternal, self-existent and all-powerful. But finally, that one who is self-existent and all-powerful took on flesh and became fully human. Now this is interesting because a lot of people will say, well, you know, Jesus, he's way less human than we are because we're human and we're broken and we're flawed. No, I've always argued that Jesus is far more human than we are. Because of sin, we are less human than we are supposed to be. Amen. And so when we look at Jesus, we're looking at what it truly means to be human according to God's design. That's what it is supposed to be. This is what it's supposed to look like. When he sends Jesus, he says, this is what I intended. I intended for you to grow free from sin, always increasing in the glory of God, so that every day that you lived, when you had a relationship with me, you would look more like me every single day. But sin came in and marred that. And rather than reflecting heaven, we started slowly to reflect hell. We started to reflect the powers of darkness. We start to reflect the demonic powers rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've got a choice every day which direction we are moving in, but this, this question of God becoming man, and why would He become man to save us? Why would the second person of the Trinity, why did He have to become man? Why did He have to take on flesh? Why is that so important? And why do, because, I mean, I always thought, you know, like if God wanted to save everybody, He could just save everybody, right? He could just pluck stuff up. Like He could put a billboard in the sky that everybody saw and said, Hey, I'm God. Nobody else could do this. Look at this billboard and say this prayer after me. You know what I'm saying? Like He could have done anything He wanted to because He was God. But see, when God created the earth, He created it as a radiant sea of the glory of God with human beings in it. And He designed human beings for a very specific purpose. They were created in His likeness and in His image. And they were designed specifically for communion with Him in the garden. That's what He wanted. He wanted a relationship from the beginning. Satan, of course, says, well, you know, you can be like God knowing good and evil. You can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in some sense, what Satan was arguing is, you don't need a relationship with God you can be like God through knowledge. You can know more. You don't need a relationship with God. You can know more and then you can decide for yourself what is good and evil and you can chart your own course. But see, God didn't design us. Look, here's the thing. Knowledge right now, folks, is increasing exponentially. The stuff that we can do is radically insane. But do you know what we do with knowledge? We start wars and blow up buildings. That's the kind of stuff that we do with knowledge. What we don't do is become, we become more like false gods, but we don't become more like the God, our creator. And so he says, you're designed for this relationship. And Adam and Eve in the garden, as they walked in communion with God, they were designed to increase in the glory of God eternally because God is infinite. And the more they reflected the glory of God on earth, the more this earth would reflect heaven itself. And that was God's design. That's why when Jesus shows up, he was a perfect reflection of God the Father. And everywhere around him it broke out. What happened? The earth started to look more like heaven. You see that? When he showed up, he was that perfect reflection that began to bring order to the earth. And it started to look more like heaven everywhere that he went because the kingdom of God was breaking through. And God put Adam and Eve on this earth and he said, I want you to have dominion over it. And I want you to establish the rule and reign of heaven here on earth as it is in heaven. 
But yet the serpent came and fed them that lie. They swallowed the pill, so to speak. They believed the lie. Sin entered in. Corruption entered in. The fall took place. And everything began to unravel. And the reason that God became flesh was because in the beginning he said, man has dominion over this earth. But man lost it. Satan usurped that authority. He became the ruler of this system of things. He became the lowercase g God of this world. And he wrecked everything and is continuing to try to do so. So what God does is he takes on flesh to become fully human, the last Adam, to come and undo what Adam did in the beginning. In order to get authority back for humanity, he has to be a human in order to do it. He has to restore us back to our rightful position, and the only way that he can do it is if he becomes human himself and he becomes the last Adam. Now, he, he, he reboots humanity. He gives us a new start. That which was fallen and broken, he's saying, I want to restore in you and I want to bring a transformation where you go back to what you were supposed to be, but even greater than that. Now, how did people know that God was coming and would take on flesh? Now, there's one guy that said there were 108 unique prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus. 108. And there was a guy named Peter Stoner. I think I've shared this with you before. But he said if just eight of the 108 came to pass, it would have been the same. The probability was one in 100 quadrillion for just eight of them to come to pass. Now, if that, does, if that doesn't give you a little bit of like, if you want some verification, you know what I'm saying, that's good. Like, even when it comes to Jesus' birth, they prophesy four specific locations that he is going to be born in Bethlehem. And, and they would get confused about this because it said he was going to be born in Bethlehem, but he was going to be a Nazarene. Well, see, he was born in Bethlehem, but it's because there was going to be taxed, and he comes back and lives with his family in Nazareth. But then it says he's actually going to flee to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt. And then it says, but during that time when he flees to Egypt, there's going to be great crying and weeping in Ramah. The fact all of those prophecies come perfectly to pass in the birth of Jesus Christ is phenomenal and amazing. And you see these prophecies throughout Scripture that this was going to happen. We didn't always understand it, but we knew it was going to happen even from the very beginning because around 4,000 B.C. when Moses uh, wrote Genesis, Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned, it says, I will put enmity. God says this to the serpent or Satan, the, the leader of the power of darkness, so to speak. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The, the theologians call that the first gospel. It's the first declaration that there's going to be one to come that breaks in on the scene and he's going to break in on the scene and all of the powers of darkness and everything that has been destroyed that has been headed by Satan himself. He says, yeah, he's going to get hurt in the process. There's going to be a cosmic battle that rages on earth. But when he shows up, he's going to be the seed of a woman. He doesn't mention a father because this points to the virgin birth so that he can be fully the son of God. And so... He comes up and he shows and he says, this is the first gospel right here, boys, that he's going to show up and when he does, he's going to crush your head. For a moment, you may bruise his heel, but ultimately he's going to bring an end to you. And Satan didn't like that, of course, and he begins to try to murder each and every person that he can that would ever have any, any, any inclination that he might be this, this particular person. So Mary shows up. There is, uh, there is some parallels here about Mary and Eve. Even Mary, both, if you remember, they both responded to an angel. But Eve talked to the angel of darkness and listened, and Mary talked to the angel of light and surrendered. Eve's choice ultimately led to the fall of humanity, but Mary's choice led to the incarnation where God would take on humanity. So there's some old guys, and I've got a few old dudes here that I'm going to read today because they, they seem to preach the gospel better than I do. One dude's name is Bede the Venerable, and if anybody's going to have a child soon, I think you should go with that name. Bede, call him actually the Venerable, too, if you have his child. <laughs> he says this, As Eve contained in her womb all humanity that was doomed to sin, now Mary contains in her womb the new Adam, who will father a new humanity by his grace. Irenaeus, in about the year 100, said, By her obedience, she reverses the disobedience of Eve so that the first virgin's fall through seduction of an angel is overcome by the faithful response of this virgin who believes the word of another angel. 
So there's a reversal that takes place. What Eve failed to do, Mary is now doing and allowing the rebirth of this last Adam that will come and redo what Adam did, face all of the temptations that humanity faced, yet live without sin and overcome death, hell, and the grave, and ultimately defeat the powers of darkness and Satan. Amen. Around 700 B.C., Isaiah prophesied it like this. He prophesied in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And what he is saying is that you're going, there's going to come a time about 600 years from now when God in the flesh is going to show up and he is going to be God with us. And that means that he is going to fully identify with us. He's not just going to be with us as a Holy Spirit kind of goosebump and presence. He's going to take on flesh and breathe and have blood like we have and have a mind and thoughts and a will and emotions and even some, some element of fears that he, he, he deals with. He's going to fully identify with us. Michael 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, this is where he's going to be born, who are too, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And a lot of scholars will say this is the entrance. The ancient days, he's marking out that this is the entrance in Bethlehem, in that little stable where he was going to be born to his mama and cry and make little grunts like Naomi made. You know what I'm saying? Like, boy that was going to make those little grunts in that stable is from ancient of days and the language there scholars will say this means that the one who is outside of time space and matter the everlasting one enters into time space and matter the one who is uncreated enters into his creation to redeem everything that he created it's i don't know y'all you like from, I, I accept preaching and I'm thinking, Lord, I can preach this and all day we could go like this right here because it is beyond our imagination. And I hope that somehow you can sit and linger on it and allow the Holy Spirit to saturate you in this tomorrow out of you, out of you open some presents and do all of that. You begin to think about God coming on a rescue mission and taking on flesh for you. See, He was not less human than we are. He was more human than we are. He took on the full human experience. Number one, Jesus had a real body. He was conceived in his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, get this, he grew weary at times. He got aggravated with his disciples. Somebody amen me. He became tired. He had to rest. He needed to take a power nap on occasion. He got hungry. He took on a reasonable soul and a human psychology because the Scripture says that he grew in wisdom. He became obedient through the things that he suffered. And it even says that his human mind had limitations. He became fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. He became fully dependent on what he did know being revealed to him by the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though he was God in the flesh from eternity. He takes on this and he cried aloud, he wept. He was sorrowful, he felt pain, he bled, he felt joy, he rejoiced, he felt love and compassion. When he looked at somebody that was broken, it moved his heart. When he looks at you and I, he smiles, it breaks his heart. When you go through difficulties, he feels what you feel and you need to understand that. One time he cried out, dealing with pressure, he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He felt that human wrestling of what it's like to go through suffering and not want to, but ultimately come to a place where you say, you know what, God, as difficult as it is, I want to do your will. He wrestled with that because he was fully human. He humbly and lovingly identified with the frailty of our humanity in order to become a faithful high priest to us. But why was the incarnation necessary? Number one, the incarnation was necessary because he had to represent us in obedience, like I said, by becoming the last Adam. See, I love that every time I fall short. Now, this is just me. This is like a Christian thing because a lot of times we think about Christianity as I'm supposed to do as much good things for God as I can so that God is pleased with me. Now, listen, let me tell you something. When God saves your soul, he changes you. And He produces good works in you. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be the first to tell you that sometimes I fall short, sometimes I mess up. You ain't going to believe this. Sometimes I sin. 
And when I do, I set and it makes me want to worship God all the more because I can't be fully obedient to God, but He came and was fully obedient in my place so that when I fall short, I can give glory to the one who fully obeyed in my place and surrender my will in Him and say, Lord, you need to fill me here. See, I also had to become my substitute sacrifice. And I, believe, there, I don't have time to unpack everything that's going on there. But you know that Jesus became the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The pagan religions desired bloods. The false gods desired blood. And ultimately, God sets this up and we see that we were offering blood throughout the millennial. But see, when Jesus dies on the cross, He sheds His blood so that there would never have to be another shed drop of blood for any kind of religious ceremony or practice. He said, I'm done with that, y'all. I don't want the blood of bulls and goats. What I want is your hearts. I want you to understand what my heart is. And he became our substitute sacrifice because you and I deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But he didn't deserve death because he was sinless, yet he entered into death on our behalf so that we could be set free from the power of death. Amen. He became human being to become our high priest and mediator. And what this means, you know, this, this means that you've got somebody standing in the gap. This God is not a, God, a philosophical God who doesn't care about you or is just out there in space like doing stuff and causing things to happen. No, he sees his world is broken and he weeps over it. And he plans to come back and finalize fixing all things but right now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you but see because he took on flesh and blood it says that we don't have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses he was tempted in all points like we are yet was without sin and because he went through what you're going through he sympathizes with your weaknesses and he says you don't have to feel bad when you're struggling you can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace to help you in time of need this is how much God loves you he came to be our example in life. He doesn't just save us, but He came to show us this is what it looks like to be a human being in right relationship with God the Father, filled with the power of the Spirit. He came to pattern the redeemed body. He was the first one that was raised from the dead in a glorified body, but He says that is among many brethren, which gives us the hope and promise that because Jesus entered into death and blew it up from the inside and was resurrected with a glorified body that will live eternally and not grow sick or weary anymore in a glorification, therefore we have the promise that you know what one day he's going to raise me up and I'm going to have the same amen, amen. I'll dunk a basketball without end <laughs> number six to initiate a spirit filled new creation humanity see Adam brought sin on the whole world but what Jesus did was reverse that so that now those who will follow him and believe in him can come into a new creation of humanity in which they are no longer enslaved and under the power of sin but they are filled with the spirit of God ever increasing in the glory of God if they will participate in it if they will participate in it so here's the thing what is the difference that the incarnation actually makes in my life. Because you've got to understand this. Number one, an incarnational life crosses barriers. So just like we sang in that song, he crossed eternity. The king of glory, who was eternally existent, with God the Father and God the Spirit, Throughout eternity, in glory. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, get, we, we believe the lie of the devil. Some people will say things like, I said this, I think, even last week. Like, you know, I kind of want the Lord to hold off on coming back. I've got some things I want to do here. That, that presupposes that somehow where God is and what heaven is and how it exists and what eternity is going to look like is somehow more boring than what you're going through. And that is the most ridiculous and absurd thought that you have ever had, my friend. And I say that with all love and grace. I'm serious. This is, this is like a shadow and a veil, and it is torment in comparison to what God is going to do when He gives you a glorified body, and He sets all things right, and He establishes righteousness, and heaven and earth become one. This pales in comparison. But it crosses barriers. And what that means is when He is willing to cross eternity and enter into time, space, and matter, and into the gunk and be born in a nasty stable and smell horse manure next to Him, that means that our lives, if we're going to be like Jesus in incarnational, sometimes we've got to cross barriers. You've got to go into places that you're not comfortable with, have conversations with people that disagree with you, that don't think like you do. You've got to cross barriers in order to enter into something in order to bring people to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Secondly, an incarnational life is evangelistic because Jesus didn't just show up on the scene and say, I see that some of y'all are hungry. 
And I see that some of y'all are thirsty. Here's some food and here's some water. It's not just social activism or anything like that. He came because he was interested in the souls of men. He came because here's the thing. We, we give children gifts, man, on Christmas. We've given out thousands of dollars to people. We've given out all kinds of things to help people that were in need during this season. And we want to do that as a church because you've got to meet people's physical needs. But let me tell you something. An incarnational life, first and foremost, meets people's spiritual needs. And it realizes that people need this Jesus in their life. An incarnational life is humble. Jesus chooses... Even though he's the king of glory who made all things, he chooses to be subject to his mother. He chooses to live a humble life with little money. He's not looking for upward mobility. He's not trying to amass wealth and riches. He's not trying to figure out how much he can gain in this world. He's not looking for any of those things. He's a lowly carpenter who lives a humble life for about 33 years and then he dies in our place even though he created us. It's a humble life. An incarnational life is devoted to the church. Jesus died, get this folks, for the church. I know it's a very popular thing to bash the church in our world at a constant rate and pick out all of its flaws. But do you know this, that Jesus died for the church when he knew it was messed up. He died to birth the church because he realized that these people are really struggling and they're weak, but if they will surrender to me and allow me to work in their lives, I can change them. And I believe that this church, the church of Jesus Christ, can actually be the hope of salvation for the world. And so through service, through dedication, you dedicate yourself not just to a building or a program, but you dedicate yourself to the life of the people of God and the growth and the advancement of the gospel. And number five, an incarnational life is global. Jesus came to die for the sins of the entire world, and an incarnational life looks beyond just where we're at right here. Now, we're supposed to find ways to bring this gospel into a global position. We've got to take it to the, throughout the world. That's what an incarnational life does. Amen. So I want to finish with one last thought, and this is a deeper thought than maybe you came for here this morning, so uh, bear with me. Amen. You know, when I, when, I, when I, Christianity, and I've said this before, it's not something we made up. It's not something we get to make up. I don't get to come up to you on Sunday and say, well, you know, I kind of feel like maybe the Lord is saying this and there's changed things. It's something that's been handed to us. It's, it's been passed down through the millennia by men who have known the Word of God, taught the Word of God, understood the Word of God, and we have received it as an inheritance. It's, it's gifted to us in a sense. And so when I study Christianity, I like to know what the dudes in the year 100 said. You know what I mean? I read you a quote from a dude named Irenaeus a little bit ago. Well, John, who wrote John chapter 1 that we just read, he had a disciple named Polycarp, which is another great name if you're having children. And Polycarp got with this dude named Irenaeus, and they... were So John was the grandfather of Irenaeus, who I quoted you just a moment ago. But there's an other guys, like Athanasius made this statement, and he was talking about the purpose of salvation, and he came up with this big word called theosis. And really it's just a big Greek weird word that means to become like God. To become like God. Now he made this statement, and when you first hear this statement, you're going to be like, that's a weird statement, I don't know if I like it, Clay. But he said that God became man so that man might become God. Now I want you to understand this because don't get it twisted. He did not mean that you will actually be God. You cannot be God, nor will you ever be God. You are not divine in essence. You are a created being. But that's not what he's saying, because that's a translation. And what he's essentially saying is that God became man so that ultimately you could become a participant and a partaker in the divine nature, the same way that Jesus took on flesh and became part of humanity in a sense. You can now take on measures of his divinity and partake of his divine nature. Say, so, well, where's that at in the Bible, Clay? Well, it's actually in 2 Peter 1. Verse 3 and 4. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Notice this. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So that through the Word of God you may become participants in the divine nature. We are invited by grace to become what Jesus is in nature. You understand? We are invited by grace to become what Jesus is by nature. 
So by grace, God is saying, look, you can come and you can begin to participate in the life of God because Jesus has taken on flesh. Now you can begin to participate in His divine nature. He has merged the two so that we can enter into relationship. And get this, y'all don't really understand this. You've never really thought about it. We believe that, guess what? The Holy Spirit lives inside of believers, right? And He's working to transform us into the image of Christ. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. I don't, I don't know if, y'all, if that settles with you or not. God lives on the inside of Christian believers. So one of the reasons, though, that I think that we wrestle with this statement is because salvation has been cheapened. We kind of cheapened salvation to like heaven and hell minimalism. And if you look throughout history, I can promise you this, that if you study church history, they did not teach salvation as come up and say this prayer And when you say this prayer, you won't have to go to hell when you die, and you can go to heaven. Now, I'm fine with that. There's an element to it that, hey, yes, you can respond to Jesus by faith, and you don't go to hell when you die, you go to heaven. Praise God for that. But see, that if that is what salvation is, that doesn't actually save you. That saves your destiny. That saves your eternal dwelling place. But it actually does nothing to you. It just punches you a ticket to heaven. And there's, see, I don't want to just have a ticket to heaven because that's not what all that Jesus promised me. He promised me an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He promised me to make me more like Him. He promised to do an internal transformation in my life in the here and now that will culminate in the end. It's not just a ticket where I get to go to heaven when I die. I get to become like the one who made me. That's, what, that's the fullness of salvation, and they believe that. But see, we've reduced it to a transaction rather than an ongoing transformation. And I believe that we do people damage when we say to them, hey, come up and say this prayer, you're saved, and we never encourage them, hey, the Holy Spirit now wants to begin to do a work in your life. He wants to transform you to be different. Because there's so many people in our community. I, you go to anybody out here. I, I, I've literally sat down with men that are shooting heroin, literally, and share the gospel with them, and then say, well, ma'am, we're saved. To which I say, from what? From, from what has God saved you? He took on flesh to redeem you in such a way that you wouldn't have to put a needle in your arm any longer. That you could see this temple as a dwelling place of God Himself. That you would change your view of humanity altogether. That when we cry out holy and we think about the God that lives in a space that we can't even tap into, we're not, we're not just thinking about God out there. We're, we're thinking now that He has sanctified what humanity is. And it's not something that can any long, longer be defiled because He has sanctified it by entering into it Himself. So when we talk about salvation, union with God and becoming like Him, I believe, is the entire goal of salvation. The entire goal of salvation is that one day you're going to be exactly like Jesus. So when we talk about salvation, even there's different parts of it, like there's justification, right? That when you first get saved and you say the prayer, so to speak, or you confess Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit does a work in your life. And even when you haven't even done one good work, He declares you righteous holy and acceptable in His sight. But the Holy Spirit begins the process of sanctification in which day by day He is transforming you to look more and more like Jesus every day of your life if you will surrender to it. And then ultimately one day you're going to see Jesus face to face and you enter into something called glorification where you become like Him because you see Him as He is. Amen. Now look at what some of these guys say because, see, this means that our ability to take on God's attributes actually get this believe it or not depends on our interaction with him now a lot of people let me say this this will be a little critique it'll be harsh you won't like it at first it'll be all right though a lot of people will say well you know that's why i don't go to church these people are that way these people that way these people that way can i tell you that the modern christian does a terrible job interacting with the divine we do a terrible job worshiping god praying to God, seeking God, and understanding spiritual matters so that we actually allow the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. This is why people hate Christians, because they name Christ, but they're nothing like Him. Amen. Y'all didn't like that very well, but it sets, it sets true. 
And so God is saying, I don't just want you to name the name of Christ. I don't just simply only want you to go to the altar and say a prayer. I want you to enter into the divine dance, my friends, where you call upon my name and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you learn to worship and you develop a relationship in the secret place and you tap into the divine nature and you draw on heaven until God himself starts to change you on the inside and you escape the pollutions of this world. And God changes something in you. See, Irenaeus, like I said, he was the disciple of Polycarp, who was the disciple of John. Let me show you a few things that these old guys said. Irenaeus said this in the year 100. He said, the Son of God became what we are in order to make us what he is himself. Gregory the theologian lived in the 300s. He said, let us become as Christ is since Christ became as we are. Another guy, Gregory of Nyssa, that lived in the 300s said, the Word became incarnate. So that by becoming as we are, He might make us as He is. This is the goal. Not a ticket to heaven. Augustine, in the 300s and 400s, he made this statement, The Son of God became the Son of Man, that He might make the sons of men sons of God. C.S. Lewis, a little bit further on down the road, 1940s, he made this statement. He said, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And what he means by that is that possible people who could reflect the image of God in such a way that you see God in them. He said it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we're in, this, in, in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. He says this, there are no ordinary people. Because every human being was created in the likeness and image of God. And at this particular t- time, every human being is either participating with light or darkness. They're either devolving into the image of demons or they're evolving by the Spirit into the image of Christ Himself. And he says our life is about recognizing that in human beings because Christ has taken on flesh and you have the opportunity to be more like Him and you have the opportunity to, by the power of the Spirit, propel people to be more like Him until that day comes. And I want to close here because when I think about one day seeing Jesus face to face and what I'll actually, like, like, I don't know about you, but when I do a deep investigation within my own heart and life, there's a whole lot of space for me to become more like Jesus. Can anybody amen me? Like there's some work that the Holy Spirit has to do and I've got to get better at participating in the divine nature. And we don't know what it's going to look like. John didn't know what it was going to look like when we finally become like him. But here's what he said in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. He says, now we're God's children. You know, somebody come up to you, you got, you got a little baby. You look at baby Jesus, it says as she was looking at Him, she knew the promises of God of what He might be, but she didn't really know what that was going to look like. She pondered these things in her heart. Somebody will come up to you, come up to your baby, you know, you you look at Naomi, you think, well, what's she going to be when she grows up? It's not yet appeared, has it? We are in an infantile state, so to speak, of our spiritual growth, where we're trying to become more like Jesus, but we're just little babies pooping all over ourselves. Amen. It's a great way to end a sermon. That's where we're at spiritually relying on the Holy Spirit to do a work in us, crying out, God, make us grow, help us to develop into the image of Christ. Because it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we do know that when He finally returns, He came the first time, and it was prophesied 108 times, and He fulfilled every last one of those prophecies. There's even more prophecy concerning His return the second time. And He says, we don't know yet, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He returns, we're going to be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. And he says, everybody who has this actual hope in him purifies themselves even as he is pure. This means that, guess what? We begin to take intentional steps to participate in the divine nature and say, God, I want you to change me. I want you to make me more like Jesus. He took on flesh so I could become more like him. He became like me so that I could be more like him through the power of the Spirit. And this is what he's drawing us into. 
John 1, 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This is what Jesus has made possible. You can be a child of God. You can inherit all things. So I want you to consider that for a moment. I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to respond to the Lord where you are at in your seat. And here's the thing. I do believe, I do believe that salvation can begin with a simple prayer. I believe that when the Holy Spirit is drawing someone, that they can respond in faith and they can repent of their sins and they can say, Lord, I don't really know. I don't understand everything that's going on. But I do believe in who you are. And I might have some doubts here. I might have some doubts there. But, but in faith, I'm taking a step and I'm going to say, you know what, Lord, I confess my sins to you. I ask for forgiveness. And I believe that you came, God in the flesh, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you defeated death and was raised again on the third day. I believe that in my heart. And so I confess you as Lord. I believe that's a perfect starting point for any person to begin. And I would ask you, if the Holy Spirit is drawing you to right now, begin in that spot with God. Begin in that spot with God. I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand this morning. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I want you to do that with the Lord. And see, because if God does that work in your heart, you're going to respond to it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that right now you would, you would do that. And you would consider just what He's done in your life. And so Lord, I bless each person. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal to us this truth that I've poorly preached about, but God, it's still a reality nonetheless, and somehow we would see it in our hearts and our minds, and that at the end of it all, we would see your great love for us, that while we were still sinners, Lord Jesus, you took on flesh and blood so that you could die in our place so that we could find salvation and be saved. But it doesn't stop there, Lord God. You intend on changing us into your very image. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you do that by the power of the Spirit in our lives this morning. Amen, amen. I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to close like this. We're going to receive communion. They're going to come up and play one song. And uh, don't get fearful about the whole communion thing. I know some of you, people get hasty, they get scared. Take your time with this. We got, we got plenty of time. Consider what this is about. This is the Lord's table. It's not the church's table. This is the Lord's table. And he's saying, in some sense, this is the reason that we partake of communion because we are partaking of Christ himself. And there's something about the reality of this that when we bless the bread and we bless the cup, the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ and His shed blood for our sins, that when you receive that by faith, there's something that happens. We don't understand what it is. It's a mystery the same way that the incarnation is. But I want you to receive it in faith. If you've not given your life to Jesus and you choose to refrain, that's perfectly fine. But today, if you choose and you say, I want to follow Jesus, I want to know Him, this table is open to you. Jesus opens his arm to anybody who will receive him, and he says he gives them the right to become children of God. So I want you to take a moment as you're walking, as you're coming forward, to meditate on who Christ is, on the fact that he came for you, that you're surrendering your sin to him, your life to him, and the body of our Lord was broken for you on that cross, and his blood was shed so that you could be completely forgiven and have eternal life and the hope of that glorified body in the life to come. So this is a blessing that he offers you. Before we do this, I want to do just a couple of things. Number one, I want us to make a confession of faith. This isn't something that we do regularly, but I want us to confess the Nicene Creed together. If you would put that up there for me, please. And, uh, yeah, thank you. So just like we did this morning, I want us to confess our faith together. So let's just work through this, if you would begin with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. 
For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Could you give the Lord a good hand clap of praise? So we've got four locations for each section. So you can even start from the back if you'd like to. You start working your way forward. Like I said, take your time. Meditate on Jesus. You take a piece of bread. You dip it in the cup. You receive it. Amen. God bless you all.